0: morning. The reading today is from John 19, 38 through 42. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: All right, thank you, Aaliyah. So, if you could, open your Bibles to John chapter 19, and that's just where we're going to be all morning this morning, these five verses here. In the last six Sundays, Jesus has been arrested and he's been tried, kind of a strange trial of course. He's been sentenced, he's been crucified, and now he has... He has died, and that, and that particular part, him dying, is what we looked at last week. And now today we talk about the burial of Jesus in the tomb. And as we go through this passage and talk about these verses, I want us to remember Paul's words in 1 Corinthians. He writes that the gospel, says, this is the gospel. He says, this is what is of first importance, a priority, is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. In other words, this burial part is important. It's part of the gospel. So you heard the reading. It's only five verses. And I'm not going to read it again. I will the last couple of verses later on. But that's one reason why you should have your Bibles open in front of you so you can follow along. And it is only five verses, but there's some great questions and details that emerge here, and so that's what we're going to look at. So burial customs, we see that in the text there. Burial customs were very important to the piety, to the feeling of virtue for the Jews. And burial in the Middle East in the first century usually took place within just a few hours, maybe even sooner, of the death. But burial, I would say, was a, was, is a kind term. A kind word to describe what really happened to most corpses in the ancient Middle East, especially those of criminals. And these three, Jesus and the two that were crucified with him, would have been. Jesus' body would have been taken off the cross and flung either into a common burial pit or taken to the burning garbage heap, which was just outside of the city of Jerusalem, which is known as Gehenna. And that's likely where the two criminals that Jesus was crucified with uh, were taken after they died. They were just dumped on that, um, that fire pit. But as we see in this passage, a couple of guys intervene, and we'll get to them in a minute. But that detail in the text about the spices, maybe that was something that piqued your interest, 75 pounds of this stuff. I mean, really, I mean, mean, what's up with that? Even the scholars say that's a lot of myrrh and aloe for one person. And we we don't really know why there was so much there, uh, other than the fact that it may have been just John trying to make sure that he gets across to us that Nicodemus was a person of wealth. That may be why that particular uh, detail was there. let's talk a little bit about what the myrrh and aloe are. They're the main ingredients, the main ingredients, there were a few other ingredients too, but these were the two main ingredients of the ancient pious burial concoction that you would mix with the linen wrappings before you would place somebody in a tomb if that's where you were gonna bury them. And both of these uh, ingredients were imported and expensive, and so like I said this signals the wealth of Nicodemus the one who brought it. So myrrh is a, is a gummy adhesive, that ha, a gummy substance that has adhesive qualities to it. It's exuded by trees that grow in Arabia, and it also is prized because it has this scent that helps to overcome the, the scent or the, the aroma of a rotting corpse. Okay? And then of course aloe is quite luxurious and is an extract from leaves of plants from the lily family. And so wrapping the corpse in the linens integrated with this mixture mixture was an important part of the ancient Jewish burial customs. And the aroma of the mixtures did help to mitigate the stench of a rotting corpse. And the drying and bonding aspects of the mixture when laid in with the linens uh, created almost a cast like covering for the entire body. And this all would be in accordance with Jewish burial customs. And the tomb was a tomb, these tombs, these ancient Middle Eastern tombs were usually hollowed out of a hillside or a mountainside rock. So they would be hollowed out of something, uh, 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 something that was already standing there. They would hollow them out, and they were pretty roomy. I mean, you could walk into these tombs, and the tombs had shelves in, in them where you would lay the bodies, and most of these tombs would house more than one body, usually three or four bodies you could put into a tomb. This tomb that Jesus was laid in had never been used yet. It it had been carved out and was ready, but it had never been um, used before. And also the tomb also tends to indicate that you have some money and some status as well. And then once the body was laid in the tomb, it was covered with a boulder that generally weighed thousands of pounds, anywhere from two to four thousand pounds. And so this whole process was, was quite the ordeal, and you would need a few people to be able to get it accomplished. And so now we have these two guys, Joseph and Nicodemus, who did that for Jesus. So who is Joseph? Joseph of Arimathea. Arimathea was a town that was a little bit northwest of Jerusalem, and so that's why he was known as Joseph of Arimathea, because that's where he lived, that's where he was from. He was a professional religious person for the Jews. And the title of today's message is Joseph the Unlikely Disciple. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about him. We're going to talk about Nicodemus too. But Joseph the Unlikely Disciple. So why was he unlikely? Well, there are a couple of reasons. Actually, I'm going to mention three right here. Number one. Joseph of Arimathea is mentioned in all four Gospels and Luke says that he's a member of the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish ruling council. So he's not just a professional religious person, but he's one who's also in charge. He has power and he has status. And so his power, status, and position are going to be threatened if anybody finds out that he's following Jesus or helping Jesus or concerned about Jesus in any particular way so that that's one reason that he would be an unlikely disciple because all of that that he has that he's achieved in his life would be threatened Luke also mentions by the way that Joseph refused to concur with the council's vote to condemn Jesus he was a dissenting vote so that took a lot of guts too here's the second reason in Matthew in that gospel Matthew lets us know that Joseph is wealthy which we kind of surmised already, but Matthew just states it outright. So his economic sustenance would also be threatened by helping Jesus. He'd be in trouble with that as well. So another reason, it's, he's an unlikely disciple. And then finally, third, he's an unlikely disciple because all of this would threaten him and his family's ability to stay in this community. They would eventually be exiled from the community the fact that Joseph was courageously willing to do uh, to do all of this also set him up for charges by others of sedition against the Roman government which is also something that you never would want to have happen so there's a fourth reason that he's an unlikely Joseph uh, an unlikely disciple but Joseph knew this truth he had Jesus to gain and everything else to lose and he chose Jesus and we know this is a problem because John includes in his description the clause, because of the Jews. He was doing this in secret, trying to do it in secret. He was secretly a disciple of Jesus's because of the Jews. Now once the Jews found out that he was aligned with Jesus, which eventually they would, they'd take everything away from Joseph. They'd take his status, his power, his position, his economic sustenance, and his community. You all think cancel culture is new? It's nothing new under the sun. Let me just talk a little bit more about this because of the Jews' comment. Here's the world we live in today. The world we live in today, the culture tells us, the world dictates to us that you can believe in anything. You can believe in anything. Anything, no matter how goofy it is, you can believe in anything, like The spaghetti monster, I think there's something like that. Anybody heard of that? Okay. No matter how goofy or foolish it is, you can believe in anything. And our reaction in the rest of the world and in the rest of the culture to that is required by cultural mores to be good for you. You do you. I'm so proud of you. I'm so happy for you. That's awesome. And understand, Christians are also called to this as well. And frankly, we kind of comply. We may not encourage it necessarily, but we don't do, we we, we really don't say anything contrary to it. And, and here's the reason why I think, anyway, for me anyway, is because I know that God is sovereign. You know that God is sovereign, and we know that ultimately God needs to work in a person's life for them to see the futility of the goofiness, trendiness, foolishness, and temporariness of what they believe. Now, God can use us to help, and we should help. We should proclaim the gospel. We should testify to Jesus. But mostly our reaction to somebody who steadfastly believes something that's goofy and foolish is going to be, okay, whatever. But, but, you say to someone in our culture, in our world, you say to somebody in this ethos of tolerance and diversity and anything goes, you say something like, I've been going to church. Or I've been thinking about Jesus and who he is. Or... You know, I don't understand it, but I think that the Bible really may be the word of God. Or you say the biblical positions on sexuality and gender are actually correct. Or you say something like biology is not a social construction, it is a fact. Or anything else along those lines. And the reaction from the oh-so-tolerant world is, no, canceled, canceled. There may have been a time when Christianity was the majority and influential force in the culture. There may have been a time, but that's almost always been the exception. We need to understand that's almost always been the exception. And that's completely gone now. And to think or believe otherwise, or to dream of a world where that will be the ethos, well there's only one place where that's going to happen, and that would be the new Jerusalem. It's the only place. And so until then, here's what I think we need to do. You and I should learn to be tolerant of our marginalized, exiled, and remnant status as Christians. Not because that's the way it is now, but that's the way it's pretty much been for 2,000 years. And remember, that's when faith is at its best and God works wonders. So that's Joseph, canceled. But what about the other guy? It's Nick at night. (laughs) Nicodemus is there. Is that even a channel anymore? I don't even, I don't know. Okay. So here's what's interesting to me. A couple of heavyweight perps are Jesus freaks. That's amazing. Now, they're in the minority. Again, they're in the minority. Exile, remnant. They're a picture of the 7,000 in, in uh, the book of Kings. You understand that? There are still 7,000 faithful to, Jesus, to God in the book of Kings. That was told to Elijah to kind of cheer him up. Okay? And it's significant that both Joseph and Nicodemus are said to be followers of Jesus. Both these guys had everything to lose in terms of a worldly sense. Both are distinguished members of the long standing, four centuries long standing Jewish professional religious aristocracy. Both are wealthy and influential. Today, today, Joseph and Nicodemus would be social media stars and they would have their own reality shows. And if they were married, they would be wives of perps, okay? That would be their reality show. And especially with Nicodemus, we see a progression. He's in John chapter 3, inquiring of Jesus. Then again, he's in John chapter 7, speaking up on behalf of Jesus. And now here. So Nicodemus, his faith seems to be maturing. We see this sort of maturing faith throughout the Gospel of John. But let's define that word maturing as a modifier for the word faith. What does it mean that faith is maturing? Well, there's many aspects of a maturing faith that we could talk about, but in particular here, one seems to stand out and fits the context in which we're talking about it. It is this. It's a growing understanding that there is a cost to following Jesus, but the cost is worth it. I can't help but think of Jesus' parable of the seeds here or the parable of the soils or however you want to describe it. Okay? So you have four seeds, you have four soils, and you have four different outcomes. The first seed never has a chance. It's thrown on hard soil, and it never has a chance to bear fruit because it never gets planted. The person says no to Jesus, and that's it. That's the end of it. The second seed's problem is that it gets planted in very shallow soil, which is a metaphor for the fact that after accepting Jesus, The person doesn't stick around because they find the life of faith too challenging. There's persecution, there's tribulation, there's suffering, and so there's no chance for them to go deeper. And so they never really did come to Jesus. It was an emotional response, but not something that was existential. The person said yes to Jesus, but then you never see them again because it's hard. The third seed's problem is that it can't handle the tension of faith with the world's Pleasures and sins mixed into that tension. This person believes that Jesus owes them an easy life, that the Christian faith is nothing but cupcakes and muffins and sin and fun. But when the cost of following Jesus involves having to swallow some spiritual broccoli and kale, they fall away. And then there's the fourth seed. And Nicodemus is a fourth seed. He gets planted. He hangs around and seeks to go deeper no matter how hard it is. He wants more of Jesus and fewer cupcakes. And he stands up to the costs and challenges of following Jesus. Nicodemus is a true, faithful, and now maturing believer. And I would argue there are a few things more challenging than actually going deeper with Jesus. I hear a lot of people talk about going deeper, but... Actually going deeper with Jesus, that's challenging. Few things more challenging than going deeper in your relationships, in your faith community. Few things more challenging than going deeper with serving others, than going deeper with unconditional, sacrificial love for others, especially when they aren't that lovable. Or going deeper with understanding God and his word and his wisdom and his will, and then living in submission to it. But here's the irony. There's nothing that will bring you more genuine joy than those things that I just mentioned. So if you're standing around on the outer stages of faith and on the outer stages of the faith community, if you're watching but not participating, if you're receiving but not giving, if you're fearing the awkwardness that sometimes comes with going deeper while also wishing that you had a deeper life, it's time for you to step up and step out. You should make the phone call, you should send the email, you should sign up, you should get into an RC, you should come on Tuesday mornings at 6.30 to scripture reading or Wednesday nights for Bible study at 7 o'clock. If you're a man, you should come on Monday morning for men's Bible study. If you're a woman, come on Thursday for women's Bible study. You could talk to Emmy or Andrea or Trey or Stephanie or one of the Tylers about how you can help or serve, but it's time to be a fourth seed. The fourth seed, and I'd include Joseph here too, the fourth seed is a follower of Jesus who sees and understands some of the deeper characteristics of kingdom life. They are courageous, they are generous, they're willing to take risks, and they're willing to sacrifice. And notice with Joseph, he was even willing to work his courage, generosity, and risk-taking within the system of the hated Roman government for him to go to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus was anathema he would have to enter the quarters of Pilate unclean unclean but he worked within the system he didn't complain about how you can never get anything done through the system he went and worked through the system so then here's these last two verses 41 and 42 now, in the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So at the place of Jesus, was, he was crucified, was a garden, and then, and then in the garden, there was a new tomb. Nobody had been buried there. And I can't help but think of the imagery here. We have, we have the Garden of Eden, and we have the New Jerusalem. That's what's happening here. It's signifying a return to the New Jerusalem when Jesus eventually comes again. This is a new tomb, a new place where Jesus is going. And then consider this little irony. Think about this. The setting for Joseph and Nicodemus taking full reins of their faith and entering salvation and eternal life is where? The setting is death and burial. That's the setting where they come to understand the the depth and the density of eternal life. Death and burial are essential parts of the gospel. And then verse 42. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now remember, we talked about the day of preparation last week. It's a lot of work. So they had a lot of things to do. And so they had this tomb available there. Well, this one will work. It's empty. Let's use this one. And again, it just so happens to be a metaphor for Genesis 1, 2, and 3. The beautiful creation, paradise of the Garden of Eden. Then we have the fall. And then, of course, looking forward to Revelation 21 and 22, as discussed in verse 41, the New Jerusalem. There's this imagery happening here of this entire narrative of the Bible. Uh, you know, law enforcement investigators often say there's no such thing as a coincidence. If they're doing an investigation and they find a coincidence, they say that's not a coincidence, that's a clue. Okay. It's the same thing in Scripture. There's a grand design behind all of Scripture. 66 books written by, uh, what, 40 or 50 different authors over the course of 1,500 years, and yet there's this grand design. Okay. Only God in his sovereignty through the Holy Spirit could do that. Okay. So there's a grand design behind the Bible, There's the fulfillment of prophecy. There's all this foreshadowing and typecasting and harbingers of Jesus coming. Everywhere you go, you look in the Bible and you can see that happening. Has anybody ever heard of Dr. Hugh Ross? Anybody? A couple of you? Yeah, he's he's an astrophysicist. I remember when Tom Schrader, our founding pastor, was told that. He said, is he the guy who invented astroturf? No, he's not he's not but he has a he has a advanced degrees in um, astronomy and in physics he's a, he's a really smart guy and he decided that he was going to test all of the ancient religious texts to see if he could tell from a from a scientific testing perspective if any of them could be true and when he got to the bible he discovered that he discovered some evidence that he thought was fairly compelling he said that Jesus fulfilled 150 Old Testament prophecies. And then he did the math. I'm not sure how he did the math. But he did the math on whether or not anybody could fulfill just eight of those prophecies. Just eight. Not 150, but just eight. And he came up with a number that uh, was described with uh, an, an exponent that I don't even understand. But he, he then gave a couple of illustrations as to um, what this number might look like. So he said, uh, the odds of a tornado blowing through Oklahoma and in its path, while it's going through, assembling a fully functioned 747. So the odds of Jesus fulfilling just eight. And then then he he said, this is the other one. Uh, This is the one I like. He said, take the state of Texas, which is kind of big, and and fill it uh, about knee deep with silver dollars. And then take one silver dollar, dip it in red paint, and then go out and throw it in the middle of Texas and mix up the silver dollars. And then take somebody and blindfold them and have them walk into Texas and then whenever they felt like it, bend over and pick up a silver dollar, the chances of picking up that red silver dollar is Jesus fulfilling one in eight of those prophecies. Just one in eight. Okay? Now, I like those illustrations and I appreciate them. But as far as I know, Neither one of those illustrations has ever convinced anybody of the reality and truth of Jesus. Because salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit. And without the Holy Spirit illuminating and revealing, you will not believe because you will not believe. Jesus said as much in John chapter 10 to the Pharisees. And as I look at the lives and stories of Joseph and Nicodemus... I asked this question, what was different about them from the other professional religious people? What caused them to believe but the others not to believe? What was different about them? And I could only come up with two things. Number one, the Holy Spirit must have moved in them. All the others heard everything Jesus was saying. They were there. The Holy Spirit must have moved in Joseph and Nicodemus. It wasn't the artful persuasion or logical construction of a human argument. The spirit had to move. And second of all, in John eight twenty eight, Jesus says this, When the Son of Man is lifted up, then you will know that I am he. Something about, something about witnessing Jesus being crucified also nudged the two of them to go deeper. There was also a Roman centurion who said the same thing at the crucifixion. Just watching the crucifixion, uh, oh, he is. He is who he said He is. This is how God moves. I I came to Jesus when I was 27 years old. And believe me, it wasn't because I was smarter than anybody else. And it wasn't the artful persuasion of any. I'd heard it all before. I know that the Spirit had to do something in my life for that to happen. And so, as such, that's also a recognition of my limitation as a human being in the arena of God's Sovereignty and salvation. I am called to faith and obedience. I am called to proclaim the gospel. But I'm not called to manage the results or to expect results. God's in charge of that. I'm called to be faithful. He's in charge of the results. He's sovereign. I'm not. It also means that I'm doing something more important than just trying to convince you of who Jesus is. I'm praying for you. The decision to come to Jesus and embrace him as Lord is the most important decision anybody could ever make. And I pray that if there's anyone here who needs to make that decision, the Holy Spirit would be moving in you right now. And maybe what the Spirit is doing with you now is just moving you to ask some more questions, and we're good with that too. So after uh, we're done here, uh, during the last two songs, during communion, after the service, there's as you can see, there's, as you saw, there's elders and deacons everywhere, and we'd love to be able to talk to you about that. So during the response time, if you want to talk, let's talk. And we'd love to talk to you not to twist your arm. That's really important. We're not interested in twisting your arm and getting any salvation notches in our belts. We have none. But we want to be used by God in the midst of your journey any way we can. And we'll prayerfully do that. So let's pray now. Our Father in heaven, what we've witnessed now, these last six weeks, with Jesus, the arrest, the trial, the sentencing, the crucifixion, the death, and the burial, the detail with which you have given this to us through your Gospels is frankly amazing. And so we ask that you would use that, those words, that story, From any of the four perspectives, and that the Spirit would come and apply that to the hearts of all of us who are here. For those who already know you, that we would go deeper with you. For those who are wrestling existentially with the truth of who you are, that as well. We pray that you would move now. And as we sing these last two songs and we take communion, we again pray that uh, this whole morning, everything that we do in this service would be consecrated to your glory and we pray that in Jesus name amen so we're gonna sing two more songs right yeah I got that right okay two more songs we're gonna take communion together if our communion servers would please Uh, come forward just about 24 hours before all of this happened that we just talked about Jesus was with his disciples and he and he was at the Passover meal and he changed the Passover meal and it's something that we celebrate every week here at Redemption Arcadia and all the other redemptions do as well and that's that he took the bread and he said, this is my body which is for you, it's given for you do this in remembrance of me and then after they had supped he took the cup with the wine and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this and remember to me. And Paul reminds us that as often as we come to this table and eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And we pray that he'd come again. And we know he's coming again. And so when you take communion, you're identifying yourself with Jesus. And he is saying, you're mine. And he is in you and you are in him. Paul says 176 times in his letters in the New Testament, you are in Christ. That's the best place that you and I can be, is in Christ. And so when you step out into that aisle and come forward, it's a confession of your need for Jesus, but it's also a celebration that you have Him. And so as we do that, you come in, you take the, the kit, you take the elements back to your seats, you take them, and then as you feel led by the Spirit, you can stand and join in, in the singing of the last two Uh, songs, and then we'll have our benediction.
2: of love above. Jesus and from death to life I will sing your praise in the wonder of your grace when I see that cross I see freedom when I see that
3: Amen. Well, thank you for worshiping with us this morning. Uh, Today's orientation Sunday. So I'm going to be back at the Connect Test. If you're new or if you've been coming for a little bit and you just want to learn a little bit more about our church, I'm going to take a quick walk around the campus, maybe 10 minutes, give you a little info, um, and maybe some, any information that you might want to know. But I'm also just going to pray over us as we go into our week. This is from number 6. Um, sometimes it's nice for us to show with our hands the posture of our hearts so you guys can hold your hands out and either uh, receive it or put it out to also give back to us as well because we aren't just people who receive God's grace but are priests, uh, uh, his ambassadors to the world So we also give it. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace now and forevermore. Amen. Love you guys. Go and live all of life. all for Jesus. We'll see you next week.